Welcome to Kingdom in Context. The Creator never intended for us to be confused by His words. He gave us His words of life, and He gave them in context, to be understood and beneficial to our walk with Him. This channel's goal is to bring clarity to some of the misconceptions that have formed over time among believers and taught by others, however innocent and well-intended. The scriptures make complete sense when we keep them in context of His coming kingdom and His coming King, Jesus the Messiah. If you're blessed by what we're doing with this channel and feel led to support us, visit the video description below where we have a PayPal option, a monthly Patreon option, or a traditional P.O. Box address. Thank you, and remember, context creates comprehension. Welcome, fellow brave believers. This is Kingdom Cast. I'm your host, Sean. This is the podcast where we search for knowledge, wisdom, and understanding of God's word and also this world so we may better relate God's word to this world. And I want to thank you for joining me. Uh, it's been a while, actually, since I've uh, done a podcast because I was uh, traveling and we were actually, if you saw the video just now uh, for Lighthouse, we were actually um, talking to content creators, trying to actually explain to them what Lighthouse is, give them a sneak preview get them excited about why they should jump on Lighthouse as soon as possible to get away from all the censorship and suppression of platforms like YouTube, Vimeo, um, even, even BitChute, and, or platforms like Facebook or Twitter, and gravitate to the free platform Lighthouse, which will not censor them, where they can put up their content freely, where they can talk about things, and they can grow their audiences again. <clears throat> it's very exciting, and it's going to be a huge shift. Our prayer is that it's a huge shift. Uh, within not just the, the creative arts community that creates video content, but also for business owners, specifically for small business owners, because you'll have an opportunity to reach more people faster than you ever have on the internet before. And that's um, just, a, it's a dream that we're trying to realize for a lot of people. So I want to thank everyone for being here. We already have some people in the chat tonight. Jeremiah 1516. Hello and welcome back. Margaret Foster. Hallelujah. Ancient Ways Modern Man. Scott McVicker. Welcome, brother. We appreciate you. Cover to cover with Jeremy Pierce. Paul Levi. James Henry. Karen M. D. Love. C. Marie. Gilbert Miranda. Miss Marsh is back. Psalm 119 is back. Tony. Clifford Phillips. James Henry. Southern Shofar. Jamela Sky. Welcome, everyone. So tonight, um, we are actually going to take your questions and we'll even take your call-in questions. If you have an opportunity to call in, you know, with your, your webcam or with your cell phone and you want to actually speak to me on screen and ask questions, um, we can do that as well. So right now, um, I'm going to put that call-in link in the chat so you guys can use that if you want. And actually, let me go real quick and let me put it in the video description as well. Okay, it's in both now. So as we're talking about this, if I'm answering questions and someone comes in late and they're asking, how do I call in? Tell them to check the video description. 
Okay. All right. Welcome, everybody. And I appreciate uh, the moderators being here. Line with Dennis. Thank you, brother, so much for what you do. I appreciate you being here. Um, Steffi M., welcome. Laura's Corners here. Welcome. Good to see everyone. Yes, Miss Marsha. Um, I'm finally back. I was actually, I took my laptop with me um, while I was traveling. I was actually going to try to do some podcasts while I was gone. I was just way too busy, though. I really didn't have a chance much to actually do the podcast, much less formulate thoughts of what I would talk about or how I would do it. And, and also some of the hotels I was in, even though they're nice hotels, for whatever reason, my, um, the Wi-Fi, the internet was not very secure. So I just, uh, did not have the opportunity to do it, but I appreciate you guys joining me again. And, uh, Oh, looks like my wife is in the chat. Hello. Hello. There she is. Look, <laughs> All right. Now, you know, Lindsay, you could just join me. I know you're in the other room. All the people would love to see you. If you want to join me for Q&A tonight, you're welcome to. I'll pull you a chair right here, right next to me. Okay, guys, if y'all have any questions about the Bible, that's uh, pretty much the idea, is we're going to ask questions about the Bible. And I'll do my best to answer them. I don't know everything about the Bible, but I know a few things and I've studied, I've been studying for 23 years. So it's uh, a lot of people that I met um, this past week that had never met me before. I had to gently remind them at some point in the conversation that, you know, even though I look younger, I'm actually 40 years old. So uh, the things that I, that I do talk about, the things that I say with conviction or, or with um, a very, you know, convinced tone is because I've studied stuff, you know? So, all right, so it looks like we have a couple of questions coming in. The second official Mike Marinoff is asking, can you explain to me Jubilees 216? I can try. So let's go look at Jubilees 216. Up on screen for everyone to look at and follow along. Give me just a moment here. Okay. All right. So here in Jubilees chapter 2, 16, this is the, the verse in question. Now, as always, we try to look for context, but let's go ahead and read the verse by itself real quick, and then we'll, we'll look at the different context around it. So it says in verse 16, he finished all his work in the sixth day, all that is in the heavens and on the earth and in the seas and in the abysses and in the light and in the darkness and everything. And so this, uh, this is him explaining what was, um, uh, I'm not exactly sure what you mean about explain, um, other than, you know, the previous 15 verses in this chapter, um, it does tell you these ideas that, you know, it goes through Genesis 1. It's, this is a parallel to Genesis 1, where he's, he's making the six days of creation. Um, so that's why he had finished all of his work on the sixth day, all that he had created previously from days one through six. The heavens, that's the multiple layers of the firmament. The earth, that's beneath the, you know, the bottom layer of the firmament, which is above our heads, uh, the dry land that we live on. The seas, which is encompassing the dry land that we live on. Um, the abysses, that's going to be not only the water, the fountains of the great deep, but also Sheol and Tartarus. Um, this is also talked about in the book of Enoch as well, chapter 22. Um, so this is the destined place for uh, 
the soul when you die. And also Tartarus is, is, a, is a place of punishment for the some of rebellious angels. And then the light and the darkness and everything. So this is, you know, the how there's there's darkness. Both the light and the darkness is a term that's used in Genesis 1-3. It's also in 1 Thessalonians 5, um, verse 8. Um, it's also the light and immortality. This is the light that was created before the sun was created on day four. This is the light that encompasses or fills um, all of heaven because those are create those are in he heaven, the realm, the kingdom of heaven, and the firmament above is inhabited by immortal beings, the Father, the Son, the angels. They have the light of immortality. This is what we're promised at the resurrection. And then, of course, the darkness is if you're without that light, you're metaphorically walking in darkness because you eventually will sin or have, you know, are bound in sin, one of the two. So there's that metaphoric use of the idea, but it's actually a literal concept as well. But then at the same time, there's the the physical science light and darkness that we just see happening from, you know, the, the day going into the night, the sun, the moon revolving over us and their circuits in the sky uh, where they were placed in the firmament on day four, creating the daytime and the nighttime, that kind of concept. So, um, so I'm not exactly sure if you have more expounding to that question, but hopefully that's uh, that's a decent covering of the idea. No pun intended, since since the word heaven is the word shomayim in Hebrew, which means covering. But that's I would encourage reading the entire chapter. That way you have a better you know it kind of what you just asked me about is kind of like a summary statement of things that just mentioned previously in, in 15 verses. So hopefully that's helpful to you. Looks like Ancient Ways Modern Man is asking, what is going on in Exodus 4, 24 through 26? Let's go look at it. What is going on in Exodus 4, 24 through 26? Let's pull this up for people to follow along. All right. Again, we're right smack dab in the middle of you know context, but let's look at it real quick. It says, now it came about at the lodging place on the way that the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. And then Zabor took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and threw it at Moses' feet and said, You are indeed a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. And at that time, she said, You are a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. So this is Zipporah having to forcefully circumcise their, their grown son, <laughs> Gershom, because Moses did not do it. And actually, we see this in Jubilees. I believe it's Jubilees 49. Okay, let's go here real quick. Sorry, guys. Jubilees 49. Maybe it was 48. I'm sorry. One second. Okay, so here we go. I think everyone can see this on screen. Chapter 48, verse 1. So we'll just read the first four verses real quick. And in the sixth year of the third week of the 49th Jubilee, you did depart and dwell in the land of Midian five weeks and one year. And you did return unto Egypt in the second week in the second year in the 50th Jubilee. And you yourself know what he spoke unto you, Mount Sinai, and what Prince Mastima desired to do with you when you were returning into Egypt on the way when you did meet him at the lodging place. Did he not with all his power seek to slay you? And deliver the Egyptians out of your hand when he saw that you were sent to execute judgment and vengeance on the Egyptians. And I delivered you out of his hand, and you did perform the signs and wonders which you were sent to perform in Egypt against Pharaoh and against all his house and against his servants and, and people. So when we put the two together, ancient ways, modern man, a lot of people suggest that. Oh, one second, guys. Let me adjust something real quick. A lot of people suggest 
that the the idea is that just like in the book of Job, um, it is the it is Satan who's actually coming before Yahweh to tempt or to uh, accuse. He's the accuser of the brethren, right? So he's the one that's coming before Yahweh to say, "Look, Moses hasn't circumcised Gershom. He's not following the covenant. He can't come out and, and be the avenger in this in this moment to execute judgment and vengeance on the Egyptians because he is legally outside of your covenant because he has." He has broken your covenant by not circumcising Gershom. And this actually, it's kind of a really good question that you asked because it actually delves deep into the idea of they knew the law. They were supposed to be following the law of God. The same one passed down from Abraham. Abraham obviously following the law of circumcision as well, right? So it kind of, I think a big reason why a lot of people struggle with understanding my, what may be happening in this moment, why that that uh, the Satan would would try to seek a moment to accuse Moses uh, unto death uh, would be because obviously the executor of of the judgment against Moses, if it went through, would be the angel of the Lord that's, that shows up because he's sent by the Father to exact vengeance on someone that's transgressing the covenant because of, you know, that's they, they entered the covenant willingly. And this kind of goes a little bit deeper. In, and if you haven't seen our kingdom portions, where we, we actually go over um, Exodus 1 through 3, my wife and I, we go into great depth about how Moses was actually raised by his Hebrew parents up until his adulthood, and then he was taken to the Egyptian court and trained and learned in all the ways in the knowledge of Egypt. So this is why he had an affinity for the Hebrews who were being oppressed incrementally and enslaved. This is why he eventually stood up for his brethren, which caused him to murder the Egyptians, you know, and then flee like we, like we read both in Exodus and also here in Jubilees 48. So the, the, the whole concept, though, is they're already in covenant. This is the same covenant promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that's passed down through Jacob's children, the 12 sons of Jacob, that's been passed down to all their children and grandchildren and everyone that's living in Goshen during that whole time. It's only incrementally over time in the generations leading up to the Exodus that they start falling away from the concepts of the covenant and start getting a lot of, quote-unquote, Egypt in them, right, where they're doing the way they're, they're enjoying the their enslavement, if you will, in Egypt. They're um, just like any oppressing nation. They give you some goods to make you feel okay while they incrementally enslave you. So this is what we see happening in multiple nations around the world today, including the United States. They try to pamper you to make you feel, you know, like they they talk about in the Exodus, the Egyptian or the Israelites were desiring meat. They're like, oh, in Egypt, we had pots of meat sitting around. We're okay. What are we going to do out here? Um, you know, they were, they had some creature comforts, if you will, that kind of made them forget about their ever increasing and oppressive labor um, and, and which they eventually started to cry out. Here comes Moses to step in. Not only is he going to be the deliverer in this moment, you know, within the agency of the father sent to be the deliverer of the people, but also there's going to be judgment that's enacted on the gods of Egypt, which we read about in the Exodus as well. So Satan doesn't want this to happen. He wants to find a reason to accuse Moses, to get Moses to be disqualified for this position. And lo and behold, he finds a reason that actually is it, is it kind of a was a big no-no for the actual covenant concept. So this is where any, you know, the Lord that's seeking in the book of Exodus, where it talks about uh, the Lord saw an occasion against Moses. Lord met him and sought to put him to death. So this is the Lord himself didn't show up. Otherwise, Moses would have been dead. I don't know if that's exactly the nature of your question, but I'm trying to cover every basis as I quickly discuss this. If the Lord himself had shown up in person, Moses would, would have been dead because remember, no flesh can see him and live. This is why there's agency all throughout the book of Exodus, just like he explains 
Um, there's, you know, the book of Jubilees and the book of Exodus explains there's these angels on this, the Elohim, the angels of God that are on Mount Sinai speaking to Moses, giving him, you know, the instructions, the fullness of the covenant to teach to the people because they had forgotten it. And this, they are already in covenant, just like Moses was. And a part of that was to do the sign of the covenant with your children on the eighth day. And this particular reason is the occasion that um, Satan is accusing Moses before the father, enacting an angel to be sent to exact justice on Moses. And then Zipporah steps in and does the covenant behavior real quick to appease the transgression, right? So this is, um, and then of course she's mad. And so that's why she calls him a bridegroom of blood. Um, so it, it, to me, it makes me wonder if the conversation was one such that, and this is all what I'm about to say next is speculation. Okay. Uh, what I've been saying previously, I can show you with lots of different scriptures, but this last statement that I'm going to say is just some commentary speculation on everything that I can prove in abundance with scriptures before this statement. It makes me wonder if there was a disagreement with Zipporah on the concept of circumcision, which is why he was, it was not done to Gershom yet. Um, it's just speculation. And that could be why she's the one that steps up and does it real quick. And then throws the, the, the detached skin at Moses's feet and says, you're bragging my blood to me because she's, she's, she's ticked off. She realizes now that it has to be done. And so she steps up. That's just speculation. And that could be, you know, who knows, maybe Moses just completely didn't, didn't do it because he didn't want to himself. I don't know. But the point is the father thought it was important at this moment. So Moses could be fully prepared to step in and full righteousness, meaning right behavior. And a part of that right behavior is this part of the covenant, doing the sign of the covenant with your children. So to step in and full right behavior before he stepped in to judge the gods of Egypt, basically, which is a big deal. So this is why um, in chapter, I think it's in chapter six of Exodus, Yahweh tells Moses, um, I think it's in chapter six. Um, he's he, Yahweh is telling Moses, "I will, I will make you like God to Egypt, or excuse me, I will make you like God to Pharaoh." Meaning, I'm going to put you in a position of power where it's as if you have more power and authority over Pharaoh, and that's what you're going to walk in as you interact with Pharaoh. And that's what we see happening in chapter seven through twelve of Exodus. Is that he does have complete power over Pharaoh. Pharaoh can't do a thing to him. Um, so he is like, in, in a metaphoric sense, he's like a god to Pharaoh in that sense. Not that he's made any type of god. It's just the language that's being used to describe the relationship and the hierarchy of authority. So this is uh, this is basically the, you know, the to be in that position, you got to be walking in righteousness. So this is this one little minute place where Moses was still failing. And so had to be taken care of in a very impromptu and what seems like very painful way. So <laughs> anyway, I'll, I won't keep rambling on about that. Hopefully that's a decent answer for you. If that was the, the full nature of what you're asking. Okay. Someone 19 is asking, what was the first thing that Yeshua told the apostles when they asked him about the end times? Well, uh, do you, Psalm 119, I'm going to, do you have a specific, like there's three, four gospels that cover this. Do you have, you know, each gospel doesn't say the exact same thing with the exact same chapters. Do you have a specific chapter that you're thinking of? Are you thinking of, you know, like, you know, Matthew 16, are you thinking of Luke 17? You think of Matthew 24, are you thinking of John 12? Like, is there, is there a specific idea that you're trying to say, uh, or to think of? I'm, I, cause there's, 
you know, it almost you'd almost have to line up the synoptic gospels and then try to parcel in John to see what's being told first. But um, but in all honesty, like I, you know, not 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 in all honesty, I said that wrong. Um, in all forthrightness, I mean, if we want to get real technical, let's go to uh, Luke chapter one. Um, I believe it's in Luke chapter one. No, it's not. Hang on. Let me, let me think of the right one. Maybe it's in John chapter one. So this would be like way before the end of his, way before the end of Yeshua's ministry um, when he sees Nathan. And I'll pull this on screen real quick. So this is right here. The next day he purposed to go into Galilee and he found Philip. And Jesus said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida of the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered and said back to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said that said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So this is from most people's estimation of the book of John. This would happen either at the beginning of Yeshua's ministry or somewhere in the middle. But it's definitely nowhere near the end. So this is a not the book of John is not a synoptic gospel like Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Whereas most of the dialogue we get from Matthew, Mark, and Luke happens more towards the end of Yeshua's career when he's talking about the end times or the end of days, and he's giving them prophecy to help them be prepared and ready. But yet this is happening with a random guy named Nathaniel, and this is like, you know, midway into his ministry. Um and if you go through the different Passovers listed in John, supposedly a year and a half before he actually goes to the cross and is ascent and then dies and is resurrected. So this, I mean, the, the, the whole concept though, I just kind of, the reason I'm saying this, cause like he just told him, I, you will see this heavens open and the, the angels of God ascending and ascending on the son of man. So the angels of God that are ascending or Matthew 13, 30, that's the, the angels that come for those who've been resurrected and they're being taken Isaiah 26, 20 away from the wrath of the lamb to the new Jerusalem to be hidden in their rooms and spare the wrath of the lamb. The angels descending on the son of man are the ones coming with him to battle the wicked at the battle of Armageddon. So that's Yeshua and the angels coming down. So the whole concept is that he's telling about the day of the Lord everywhere he goes anyway. Whether we find the exact moment of chronology when he starts talking to his disciples specifically or when his disciples are listening as he's talking to someone else specifically about the end days, it doesn't matter. He talked about the end days everywhere he went all the time. This is literally the, the message of Yeshua. This is, this is the gospel of the kingdom that he's talking about. A huge component piece of the gospel of the kingdom is the day of the Lord, is the day that the heavens are open and the resurrected are taken in the New Jerusalem and the Son of Man is coming down with war angels to fight the beast and um, round up Satan, and kick out the unclean spirits, and destroy the armies that are trying to fight against him and, and to establish peace on the earth. So this is a central part of his message everywhere he went from day one. Let's go to Matthew chapter three. I'll show you more. So because it's not just his message, it's literally the message of the prophets themselves. 
So he's always talking about the end times. Let's check this out. First, Matthew chapter 3, 1 through 3. So you guys remember, Matthew chapter 1 through 2 is the, the announcement of the birth of Jesus and all that stuff. So now that Jesus is, is, is a grown man and it picks up in chapter 3 where he's about to get baptized with John the Baptist. But John the Baptist is already preaching about the end days. In fact, he's preaching specifically from Isaiah 40, chapter um, Isaiah 40, verses 3 and 4, specifically about the same thing that, that Yeshua was mentioning to Nathaniel, which is the day of the Lord. So let's look at it right here, Matthew 3, 1 through 3. Now in those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, for make his paths straight. So this, this passage, the very next verse in this passage in Isaiah 40, is talking about the, the mountains mounting like wax, the valleys being raised up. That's how the paths are made straight, preparing it for the way of the Lord. He's applying this, this end times prophecy from Isaiah to the one who makes that end times prophecy possible, which is Yeshua of Nazareth. That's why he's saying that this is the one of whom Isaiah the prophet was talking about. Because Yeshua is the king of Israel who makes the day of the Lord a possibility. And he, he's the one that literally comes back on the day of the Lord and makes the path straight and, and creates a place for the, the city of God, the kingdom of God to sit down. So they're all speaking about end times, by the way. I just want to encourage you. There, that's the message of the gospel of the kingdom is the time of consummation. Like we talk about honor of Kings when we review the pockets of Baruch and, and other chat and other books that it's also called the day of the Lord and, and Isaiah many places and other prophets in the old Testament. And it's a, uh, it's spoken about everywhere. It is the central message that Yeshua talked about and John the Baptist. Yes, there's, there's repentance of sins. Yes, there's righteous behavior that you should learn and do and practice. That's called the law of God. Yes, all that's included because that's the behavior of the kingdom that comes down. But the actual day where the wicked's routed out and peace is established on earth and the Son of Man comes down to establish the new Jerusalem and start the millennial reign, that is the gospel of the kingdom of God that Yeshua talked about everywhere because he is you, you know, talking about the same message all the other prophets talked about because there's continuity with what what Yahweh, the creator, is trying to tell mankind through his prophets. And Yeshua was one, was considered a prophet in addition to being the son of God. So hopefully that's a, a, an in-depth answer for you. It's a great question. Um, and we got, uh, we got a lot of questions. So let's see here. Um, funky Monkey Painting. It's a, it's a great handle. So you're asking, is it against Torah to hunt on the Sabbath? I would say a couple of things. I would say now in Jubilees chapter two and chapter 50, it talks about hunting is against the Sabbath because you're supposed to get all that stuff prepared. Just like if you go to draw water from a well, you would supposed to have already that drawn, brought into your house. Um, now, even though the general context of those instructions in Jubilees two and Jubilees 50 is about commerce, um, the idea is that you would go and hunt for surplus food that could be sold at the market. Therefore you're making profit. You're making money off of it. If it's a survival situation, I don't see anything wrong with going out and hunting. If it's you trying to make profit and sell your foods and goods, then I would say don't hunt on the Sabbath. So, I mean, the idea is to, is to have all your provisions done by the sixth day. So you can just rest on the seventh day because on the seventh day, you're actually going to be making the food of your feast of your celebration of the Sabbath. Cause it's a feast day, Leviticus 23, one through three. So there's a caveat there of intent and context. Is your intent to profit, to make money off of it? Or is your intent to literally just survive 
if you're in a severe, severe situation and you're just trying to survive and you need to hunt to provide for you and whomever you're with, then I don't see you breaking the Sabbath. There's no specific Torah command against that. But if you're you're taking those, what you hunt and kill and sell in the market and making profit, then yeah, that would be against the, the law and the spirit of the Sabbath. Okay, Ms. Mars is asking a question. Uh, this is what we would call an advanced question because it, it does take some some setup, but I'm gonna I'm gonna answer it as quickly as possible because we actually have done quite a few videos on this already. It's on our milk and meat playlist, and uh, it's actually um, the one where we did with Ken Heiderbrecht, a two part series. Um, one of them is called "Why Did God Create Angels?" and then we go into the nature of heavenly bodies in the heaven above and how they're created differently. They're actually created with this. They're created with water. We're created with dirt. That's why, you know, we have a shade to us. They're created with water. We're very limited with what we can do with our dirt bodies. They're not limited because water is a very, very fantastic substance that even scientists still study all the mystery, mysterical properties of water and how many uses it can have and hold. Angelic beings, including whatever angels, are made with water, in my opinion. And so it's a very different concept. Um, Sorry, one second. Oh, God. Let me turn this off real quick. Okay. One second, guys. Sorry about this. I've got things blowing up my notifications. It's distracting. Okay. So it's no, it's not the same flesh and blood. Yes, it is some sort of flesh, um, as Jesus talks about in John 20, right? Thomas touched me, you know, a, a ghost doesn't have flesh like in bone like you see I have. But at the same time, I don't think it's it's blood like we have right now. From from my understanding, because we look at 1 Corinthians 15, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Um, so I personally, if we're going to get very detailed, that's why I said it's kind of a specific, uh, this is kind of an advanced question. Um, but for the sake, I could, talk for the next hour, but for the sake of other people's questions, I'm gonna have to do my best to summarize it because we have covered this in other videos. It's that the flesh that we have is that encases the blood that keeps us going, right? The life is in the flesh of the blood kind of concept is, is the concept of the soul. But yet when we get an, an immortal body that's promised to us at the resurrection, where Jesus tells us we're made like the angels, this because we had that type of body same thing in second Baruch chapter 51 verse 8 through 11 will be made like those who inhabit the heavens above um, where we'll be able to change our form at any time which is what angels can do that's how they can appear and disappear that's how jesus who has a resurrected body who's given a immortal heavenly body like the angels have that's why he could appear in luke 20 or disappear in luke 24 as he's breaking bread with the two disciples but then in john 20 he appears in a locked room out of nowhere and they can touch him and they can feed him fish and he can eat it and the fish doesn't fall to the ground so it's like your body has a higher level of capability because that's what's called your incorruptible immortal heavenly body that you're promised at the resurrection yeshua already has his because he's the first fruits of the first resurrection event the angels have always had theirs because they are living in heaven. Not, they don't live on the earth. They weren't born through the womb of a woman. They were born by the father at the first day of creation and given this body from the start. So with all that said, uh, it's very different concept. Uh, they do have some sort of flesh. They do have some sort of, of uh, life within them. I personally think it's light, uh, which is why some scientists claim that blood is um, like a version of congealed light. I 
I don't have the link for you. I'm sorry. I probably shouldn't even have said that, but you guys can research that out on your own. Um, but this is, this is the consistency with that particular scientist who's claiming that, that blood has, is like congealed light. Um, that I actually see a continuity of that idea from what scripture tells us the difference between angelic bodies or our, our promised resurrection glorified body that's promised to us. Uh, you know, this is Romans eight 21. This is first Corinthians 15, uh, the whole chapter. This is what Yeshua has and what he exemplified, what he already received at his resurrection, this glorified body that we're going to get that we can just move like the wind. Like he promises Nicodemus in John three, five through eight, right. That you, um, you, you are, made differently you're glorified and with this body you don't have the same type of blood that we have but you you can your body will have some sort of flesh or some sort of um it will look like you have flesh if i could put it like that because you can you your form can be made in that 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 image if it will um, because you have higher capability now um, and this of course goes with the promise of jeremiah 31 33 and 34 that you'll have god's law that's god's behavior that's god's instructions for living you have those emblazoned on your new incorruptible heart so that you'll never corrupt again, not yourself nor anyone else. You'll be able to walk in right behavior continually. This is the promise of the resurrection. So uh, giving you some highlights, but there's, there's more to it. Hopefully that's a decent answer for you, sister. Okay, uh, Mike, you're you're saying that your version of the, of Jubilees is a little bit different than the one that I read, as far as just the way the the placement of the verses themselves, and there's a reason for that, brother. Um, and I I don't know if you're asking about the the statement or just why they're different verses. I I'll give you a quick answer on both. The, the, the different verses is because when when Doctor Sefer has to actually make that excuse me when Doctor um, Pigeon has to make that Sefer. He, there's there's copyright and plagiarism laws that he has to work within. And one of those is that he can't make it just straight up copy of something that already has a copyright on it. And I'm guessing there's versions of the R.H. Charles version out there, because since it's been translated for over 100 years, that already has copyrights on there. So that way, when when Dr. Pigeon goes to wants to put the Book of Jubilees, he has to change some of the wording. He has to pull out the thesaurus, right, and use different words that mean the same things. He has to change some of the sentence structure enough to, to pacify and to qualify to be an original work so it can pacify the legislation of copyright laws. And as a result of that, sometimes the editors in those situations uh, will break up the chapters or they'll you know slightly move the verses um, or they'll include one passage into the verse above it so that it makes it have a different verse below. It, it's still the same information. They just kind of rearrange the way it's formatted to try to pacify uh, the, the plagiarism and copyright laws. So that could be why. But other than that, you're asking about the two and the 22 kinds. Uh, let me try to get to this quickly. Okay, so that's verse 23 in the version that I'm looking at. Okay. So it says, and there were two and 20 heads of mankind from Adam to Jacob, and two and 20 kinds of work were made until the seventh day. This is blessed and holy, and the former is also blessed and holy. And this one serves with that one for sanctification and blessing. So my understanding is just paralleling um, the uh, the priests from Adam to Jacob, which is the heads of mankind. That's, that's what that position would be uh, with these wonderful accomplishments that were made during the six days of creation. So um, 
I'm not sure what further commentary um, you're asking about or other than that, but that's that's why it's mentioning the heads of mankind from Adam to Jacob because it's it's talking about the priesthood that's been passed on from Adam to Jacob, which is what Jubilees goes on to explain throughout the like, you know, throughout the rest of the book, <laughs> for the most part, actually until you get up to like chapter 46, where it, it finishes with Jacob celebrating uh Shavuot with old grain. So because he was a priest and, and anyway, but there it just goes into it in great depth. So I, I think that's what you're asking about, and I hope that's a decent answer for you. All right. Thanks, Maxim. Good to see you, brother. Thanks for coming back. All right. Kelly Williams is asking, uh, first of all, guys, real quick, just so I don't miss your questions, be sure to put them in all caps. I, I'm glad I saw this one, but I could have just skipped right over it because I'm looking for the questions in all capitalization. So be sure to do that, please. Where, when, and how did Jesus descend into hell while he was dead or after resurrection? A little confused here. Thanks. It's going to be during the three days. That's why it says, you know, Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. So he's at, he goes down to Sheol where the, the spirits of the dead are, are held and waiting resurrection. Um, so that's where he went during the three days that, uh, three days and three nights that he was dead before he was resurrected. Jeremiah 15 is asking, so Satan is the tempter and the accuser? Yes. Yes, he is. He's the accuser of the brethren, but he also is a tempter. This is why in uh, James chapter 2, it says God does not tempt anyone. It is by man's own sin that he's enticed, uh, his own lust that he's enticed to, to sin. So, yeah. All right. Looks like we got a couple of people wanting to call in to ask live questions. I'm going to take them in the order that I received them, even though they called in almost at the exact same time. So, um, Looks like Maxim called in uh, second, so I'm going to take Alexander's call first, real quick. And let's see here. Hey, Sean. Let's add him to the. What's going on, Alexander? Hey there. How are you today? I'm good. I'm good. How are you? Good, man. Good. Thanks for calling in. What what kind of question do you have? So two weeks ago, I saw something that was really disturbing, and it's kind of man really confused me uh, and made me question my faith in Messiah. And the reason why is because in Ezekiel 44, I, I've used 40 through 48 to kind of show the kingdom of heaven and the keeping of mm -hmm. God's laws in the kingdom of heaven. But I kind of overlooked, and, and in hindsight, I think it was a little bit willingly, that priests have regulation regarding marriage and then later mm -hmm. with dead bodies. So how do we reconcile that with the glorification in which we're not married or given in marriage? Oh, yeah, for for real. Ezekiel 44 and 45, you're talking about the separation of the priesthoods that are going to be happening during in this wonderful tabernacle that's described in Ezekiel 40 through 43, right? Yeah. And then there's and then the following chapters go into a priestly breakdown, go into celebration of feast days and sacrifice for atonement and Thanksgiving. Um, and that's what you're referring to there. So a lot of people assume that the prince or the priests being mentioned in there is Jesus. But remember. Revelation, the promise of, a, of the covenant is uh, there's there's two promises that are called eternal that are happening um, at the at the time of Yeshua reigning on the earth in the New Jerusalem as high priest forever. One, the resurrected saints are brought into the same priesthood under his authority. So that means he's going to be the high priest where the priesthood below him. We will not be marrying people as promised in as by Yeshua as explained at the resurrection, Matthew 22, verse 29 through 30. But 
the Levites, the humans that are not resurrected and glorified, they're still alive. These are the guys that survived the day of the Lord. They're going to be rechosen by God when the kingdom comes down to minister in his temple, just like they were designed to, just like explained to us in the Torah. So let's go to those verses real quick. I'm going to pull this on the screen for everyone to watch. Okay. So if we go into Isaiah, that it's actually explained to us um, in Isaiah 66, towards the very end, I think it's 17 through 21, um, 18 through 21. It says, for I know their works and their thoughts. The time is coming that together all nations and tongues and they shall come and see my glory. That's Matthew 25, 31. That's the sheep and goats judgment. That's the kingdom's already landed. All the nations are brought before him to be judged. This is why in Isaiah 2, 2 through 5, all the nations will come to the mountain of God, which is Zion, the new Jerusalem, to learn the ways of the Torah, the law of God, which is how there'll be peace on the earth. This is that same moment being described, just like in Zechariah 14, 15 through 19. So right here it says, I will set a sign among them and I will send survivors from them to the nations, Tarshish, Put, Lud, Meshach, Tubal, Javan, to the distant coastlands that have neither heard my fame nor seen my glory. So let's think about the practicality of what he just said. The new Jerusalem comes down, massive earthquake, destroys the cities of the nations. Yeshua and the angels are battling the wicked. He's battling, you know, Apollyon and the false prophet and all the kings and the nations and the armies that assembled with them to fight Yeshua. They're being taken out. The angels are going all throughout the breadth and the width of where the New Jerusalem is going to set down to make sure everyone's even moved out of there or killed if they don't move out of there because they're they're that's they're there to fight um, Jesus and the angels. So as a consequence, in that general vicinity around where the New Jerusalem is going to set down, there will be those who have survived, and these are the ones that are going to be sent out to the rest of the plane of the earth to pull in everybody else, so they can come for the sheep and goats judgment. So this is what it's talking about here. And they will declare my glory among the nations, meaning they're going to go out to all the other nations and say, guys, <laughs> you got to come see this. There's this 1,500 mile city that just came down out of the sky. Oh, by the way, we don't live on a ball. We live in an affirmant. I'm with it just you came, you yeah. see what I'm saying? So like they're going to go out and they're going to talk about that's what the glory that's being referred to right here as. It's the glory of Zion, which is this is the end of Isaiah. If you look at the previous 12 to 15 chapters, it's talking about the glory that's promised to Zion, which is the house of God. It's the, the bride, the new Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven, that all the nations will walk in its light. Literally, uh, they'll walk in its light. And yes, the son of Moon will still here, be here. That's a little bit different caveat. But I'm just saying as far as not only will they walk in the light of the Torah that they're going to learn when they come to the city, but they'll literally walk from the light that is shining from without, from within the city. Um, and at the same time, there. But this is the beginning of the millennial reign. This is the, this is the transitionary period where the city comes down, the, the Yeshua, and everything being described in Ezekiel forty through forty eight comes down within the city. So okay. Yeah. That place. Yeah. That place needs ministers, and you're going to have two different priesthoods that minister within that place. You have a glorified priesthood, which will be the resurrected saints, Lord willing, you and I. Then you're going to have the from the survivors from all the nations that will be gathered. This is what the rest of the verse says in verse 20. Then they shall bring all your brethren from all the nations as a grain offering to the Lord on horses and chariots and litters on mules and on camels to my holy mountain, Jerusalem. It says, Lord, just as the sons of Israel bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord, I will also take some of them for priests and for Levites. So all those instructions in Ezekiel 44 and 45, yeah, the priests still have to abide by those instructions, just like they did in Exodus 21 for the priests. They couldn't marry certain women, had to marry virgins, that kind of thing. Because these are mortals. 
they're still mortals. They're still in their fleshly bodies. They didn't die during the events of the day of the Lord. They still survive. They're alive and they're going to live out the rest of their human life. So why would God choose the people who aren't glorified to be the one that minister closest to his manifest presence? That's what he rather did. Rather than the other the, way around. That's what he did with the Levites. Okay. That's why he promised, he promised them they would get to minister. This is why it was such a big deal because uh, Moses and Aaron and everyone before him, they already knew about the kingdom. They already knew about the New Jerusalem. They read it from Enoch. That's what Testament 12 Patriarchs tells us. That's what Enoch, the end of Enoch actually tells us. It's literally what um, Hebrews 11 is referencing in verses 10 through 14. Abraham looked for a city whose architect and builder was God. He knew this wasn't, he was just a sojourner here on the earth. He knew this wasn't his, his eternal home. So they, they already knew the story. Um, it's been hidden from us for a long time. It takes us diligently seeking the word to really piece together, you know, what they already knew with, with much clarity. So it was a huge honor in the days of the Exodus at Mount Sinai, Exodus 24 through 28, when Aaron is actually being given this priesthood, this high priest position, not just the regular priesthood, but the high priesthood position, because that was a special minister who comes directly before the presence of God to minister close, closer than anybody else. And of course, you know, as we see in Leviticus chapter, what is it, chapter nine, uh, chapter eight, or chapter nine uh, with um, Nadab and Abihu that, you know, it kind of goes wrong in one in one moment where they actually get killed because they do it improperly because it was such a huge honor and responsibility for them to get that close to the power of God in their mortal flesh. This is why they had to be clean, all the regulations for being clean in a variety of ways because they're bringing their mortal flesh before the Father to minister. Same concept, same dichotomy is going to be happening in the New Jerusalem with this, with this beautiful um, temple that's being described in Ezekiel. But at the same time, they're going to have to learn how to do that again. And that's where you and I come in. That's why the law is emblazoned on our hearts and our resurrected eternal bodies and glorified and incorruptible. This is why they will come to the house of God, the, the Mount Zion, the, the New Jerusalem, to learn his ways, as Isaiah 2, 2 5 says. Not just the regular people, but also these guys he's choosing for priests and Levites. We're going to have to teach them how to do this, which means just like in the dichotomy of Moses and Aaron, Moses was likened as a king over Jeshurun. He was likened as a king over Aaron, who was also given a crown and had authority over all of Israel too. So there's this dichotomy of a, a prophet, a priest, and a king ruling over another king or another um, priest, which was his brother Aaron. So this is that same concept of whereas if I could extend the metaphor, the resurrected priesthood, the glorified priesthood that rules and reigns with Yeshua, we're like Moses. The mortal Levites, they're going to be like Aaron. Does that make any sense? Yeah, that actually, that makes a lot of sense. I I've, I was trying to try to place this somewhere because I, I assumed that there was just going to be one priesthood or that that anybody that is able to partake in in the in gathering of the exiles and, and the resurrection of the dead, whoever's considered righteous at the end of the age, that that's who's glorified. I, I didn't think that there would be people in New Jerusalem that aren't glorified. Um, so yeah, I, just, I've got a lot to consider about that. Yeah, just remember, they have to they have to keep the law to get in, though. That's the thing. That's why yeah. Revelation 22, uh, 14 will tell you, blessed are those who keep the commandments that may have the right to enter the city. You see what I mean? Yeah. They get to, they get to inherit the city if, well, after they die and resurrected later, but they will get to enter the city. This is why the gates are open perpetually, as it talks about in Ezekiel 45, because they, that's where we're going to celebrate our feasts. All the That's why Zechariah 14 talks about all the nations are required to come to the city to celebrate Sukkot. Otherwise, they don't get any rain in the land. So just like in Numbers, 
which is the explanation in Numbers 29 of people come to celebrate Sukkot, which is commanded in Exodus 23 and Leviticus 23. You're going to come to the doorway, the gate of the house of the Lord, so that you can celebrate these feasts and bring your offering and show you know your homage and your gratitude. And you have to do that clean, which means you've yeah. got to know the law to be clean. Same thing. That's why it's it's such like one of the biggest lies in the Bible, or one of the biggest lies that people make out of the Bible is to claim that the law is done away with. Because it's it's literally behavior of God that we've always seen, and it's actually going to be behavior the entire world participates in and has to do and learn when he returns. That's literally how they're the average person who survives the day of the Lord, say they're from, I don't know, you know, Micronesia, right? And they yeah. get on a boat and they travel to India and then they cross over to India through Iran, you know, and then they come over to Israel and they can come up to the house of the Lord and actually interact not only with the, with the glorified priesthood that, you know, that, that will be resurrected inside, but also with the King himself, because they'll be able to come up to Jesus, but they have, you know, if they want to come inside the city to do all that, they got to just follow the basic rules for cleanliness. And to, this is why some translations of Revelation 22, 14 says, blessed are those who wash their robes because they're still doing the commandments. That's part of the commandments of the Torah, which is to get yourself prepared, clean and washed. So you can step before the temple to offer your sacrifices and get near the presence of God. Right. Those who don't come to the wedding without uh, wedding garments, then uh, they get yeah. thrown out. You know, many are called, few are chosen. Yeah. So there's there's a. I think the reason why some people struggle so much to understand the dichotomy of how the survivors of the Lord of the day of the Lord interact with the city after it sits down is because we've been told the law's been done away with. And we think that they're somehow going to be up, you know, doing some other, other standard that's not defined. Yeah. But in fact, the prophets have defined the standard that they'll be held to, um, which is they'll have to learn the behavior of Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I got you. I've, I've been on board with Torah for, for a year and a half now. And, and I credit you with, with a lot of my understanding, especially of the true tabernacle in the heavens. Um, that was a big one for me. Um, but cool. yeah, this, this hitting the, the whole marriage or no marriage in the world to come was, was a, was one just hard to reconcile for me. But, uh, yeah. I, I thank you, Sean. That was, that's great. Yeah, man. Just remember the resurrected glorified peoples, they won't marry because they're not procreating. But everyone outside the city, they'll carry on life like normal. That's how they rebuild the world and the city and have peace during the millennial reign. Um, so that, you know, when Satan's let out, he can deceive some more people. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, they're, they're still going to be procreating and having babies, filling the earth. And in fact, the beautiful part about this is that the priesthood that happens at the resurrection, that rules and reigns with Yeshua for a thousand years, like Revelation 20, verse 4 through 6 explains, we will be teaching for a thousand years. We'll be helping people learn the Torah all throughout the plane of the earth. So that means, in my opinion, like, like Isaiah 9 explains in other places, Isaiah 65, there's no war, there's no disease, right? Remember that the trees on the uh, the leaves on the tree of life are used for the healing for the nations, yeah. as Isaiah 47, 12 and Revelation 22, 5 explains. So or as a result of that, there's going to be an incredible population growth throughout the millennial reign. They're going to have all the food they want. They're not going to be killing each other. They're not going to have disease. The unclean spirits are taken care of. They're out of the way. Satan's locked up. Righteous judgment. Righteous judgment. So people aren't, there won't be injustice because um, we'll be helping them, right? Yeah. We'll be doing what the watchers failed to do during the days of Jared. Gotcha. Gotcha. Right? Yeah. So as a result, there'll be a population growth like no one's ever seen. The world will be filled I mean, people laugh and people try to claim it's overpopulated now. I think they're just <laughs> falling for the propaganda. They've never flown over the Midwest, the United States. Yeah. So like 
the world will be filled. I mean, we're talking possibly, you know, 10 trillion people and the feast will be amazing. I mean, talk about the sound of the choir of people singing all around the city. It, it, it'll be amazing. So that means at the second resurrection, the harvest will be tremendous, so much greater than the first resurrection. This is why Revelation 7, the innumerable crowd, they're considered great. They get to rule and reign with him. Yeah. That second resurrection will, will far outweigh, the, just the sheer numbers, I should say, will far outweigh. So that's a great honor for the priesthood that becomes part of that first resurrection priesthood to be able to be the facilitators. That's why, in my opinion, it's so important, Matthew 5, 19 through 20, that we would know the, know the commandments of God and teach others to do them. This is why we're called great, which is a word synonymous with becoming a priest in the Torah, because we are doing, we're doing the commandments, we're teaching them to the others. This is the job of a priest. That's why we're called great in the kingdom, because we get to do that for a thousand years. So anyway, I just yeah. want to encourage you, brother. Um, it's a dichotomy that a lot of people miss, but it'll really help you understand some of the prophets. Awesome. Thanks, Sean. All right. Hey, you're welcome, brother. Thanks for calling. All right. Maxim. Hey, brother. How are you tonight? I'm good. How are you doing? Good, man. Thanks for calling in. Yeah. Can you hear me good? I can. Your volume is good. Your audio is good. Awesome. Um, well, just to kind of piggyback off of what Alexander was saying, it was kind of funny. I was having a conversation with somebody uh, pretty close to me who is uh, anti-Torah, but a true Christian that's been a Christian his whole life and says, hey, I found the haircut that God wants. And he opens up Ezekiel and the description of the, uh, the priests in Ezekiel. And he's super anti-Sabbath. And he's called me lost and all, the, all that because I do that. And I said, you know, it's kind of funny that you read that that's what God's haircut style is, uh, where he says, you know, keep your hair short, where, you know, one or two verses later, he says, and these men that have this short haircut will teach to keep the Sabbath so far. I mean, so on and so forth. So I find that very, very um, funny. <laughs> is he funny. is your friend a part of like the Southern Baptist churches? Uh, no, no, uh, Pentecostal, but, uh, okay. Slavic Pentecostal, which is very, uh, very similar to the Southern Baptist style. Um, as far as try to moderate their congregation, how they look and dress and everything. Yeah. 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 There's a lot of, if, if you, um, if you wear certain things, you know, it's inappropriate and yeah. I'm not talking about being dressed immodestly. I'm talking about just, you know, certain articles of clothing is considered inappropriate because, you know. Because it's their standard. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Not, not yeah. defined in scripture, but some, you know, some council of pastors thought they thought it was inappropriate. Exactly. When I was in Bible school, I dyed my hair like Dragon Ball Z platinum gold. So it was long and um, it was long on the top and I'd spike it up and it was like, we're talking like platinum blonde, like almost, almost white. And um, they did not like that. My Bible school professors did not, yeah. did not like that. But yet... Yeah. I was able to like people would come up and talk to me that never talked to me before because they thought I was cool now. <laughs> so then, I mean, I was very much similar as you see me today. I was always talking about the Bible. And so then it just gave me a chance to talk, about, talk to people about the Bible, like a whole bunch more with, with kids that never would talk to me previously. So I thought it was kind of funny. So it's just interesting how different generations, different perceptions of what's acceptable for appearances. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, man. Um, well, I had a I had a bunch of questions, but I'll only ask one just to okay. kind of save time for everybody else. 
Okay. Um, maybe I'll maybe I'll call in another time. But um, this question is First Corinthians chapter seven. It's going to be verse thirty-eight. Um, and this is something that I personally have an opinion on it. Um, okay. But just wanted to see your take on it. Um, and that is, so then he who gives her in marriage does well, but he who does not give her in marriage does better. No. I find that very odd that Paul can suggest that somebody who would do something that goes against the commandment of God to be better than the actual commandment. What's your take on so that? The, well, that's, a, that's saying that there's a commandment of God to give your wife, to give your daughter as a wife. Uh, I believe, yeah, because he uh, he mentions earlier that I did not command to to um, to uh, be given into marriage. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know, I have it highlighted here, but um, I was just kind of looking through that. So he does say that I did not command to give into marriage, but God did. And then he goes on to suggest these other things. And one of them is that, you know, he who does not give his daughter into marriage does better than he who does not. Now you remember the the rest of the chapter, right? Where he's talking about um, he had already he had already said in his opinion he was thinking that's better that you know a man not marry, but because he's talking about his the interests that are being divided. So like if we go back up to I don't know if it's at verse twenty nine or here. Let me pull up on the screen for us real quick. So we go to let's just start in verse twenty five. Um, even though there's a lot more already in the chapter because he's talking about how when you become married you're now you're just naturally your interests are divided between you serving the Lord and then, you know, having to fulfill the needs of your spouse. So verse 25, he says, not concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord, but I give an opinion as one who by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy. So he's, he's right out the gate. He's trying to tell us like, this is, this is no specific command of any kind, but this is his opinion. And so I, I get what you're saying that falls into what you, what you're asking, right? Cause you're saying that, this, this is why I asked you the initial question, which was what command in the Torah says that a husband must marry his daughter to somebody. So that would be the general assumption that you're working within to then think, why would Paul's opinion seem to contradict that? But that's only if your, your supposition is actually a Torah command. I don't remember it being a Torah command. Yes. It's a, it's a, it's a general assumption that we procreate, you know, we, we give our sons and daughters in marriage to other, other people. So, but as far as being a specific command, that could be why he's right out the gate trying to draw a, a distinction between there's no command of the Lord, but this is just his opinion. All of it's in the context of him talking about divided interests, and I'm going to get there real quick. So he says, verse 26, I, I think then that it's good view in the present distress that it's good for a man to remain as he is. What's the present distress? They were going under great persecution mm -hmm. for, Yeshua, for Yeshua, for the testimony of Yeshua. So speaking of the Corinthians, who are the Greeks, they were going under great persecution because they were in the Roman Empire. And specifically in these provinces, they were, there was heavy persecution all the way up to Spain. So this is, I, I think this, to me, this strikes as something that he's explaining to men in, in, the, in the province that he had already went and evangelized in Corinth, who are struggling with sin greatly, by the way, if you read the rest of Corinthians. These guys are really, really struggling to adopt the Torah in their life. <laughs> you know, they're they're struggling. <laughs> They've got some some messed up situations going on in this congregation, and so they're also facing persecution um, of the Romans during this time. And there's a lot of speculations on when Corinthians was written. Some people think, you know, it's it's it, like AD sixty one. Some people think it's a little earlier, but either way, that that falls right into a large amount of persecution of believers all throughout the Mediterranean. 
Um, he goes on to verse 28 says, but if you marry, you have not sinned. So there's right there. He's saying it, you know, he's not saying it's bad to marry. You know, mm -hmm. he just says his opinion is he would rather you be single to focus on God. But like he says earlier, if you burn, meaning like if you can't handle it, if it, you know, if you, if you got, if you need to have a woman because that's that way you were made, go ahead and marry. So that's where he's saying, if you do marry, it's not sin. Uh, he goes on to verse 20, uh, verse 28 to say, yet such will have trouble in this life. And I'm trying to spare you. So it sounds like a bad sitcom in the United States where the husband's complaining about being married. It sounds like, you know, I, yeah, it, it doesn't really tell us. Uh, I, I don't think that he ever married personally. Uh, it doesn't seem like Paul ever married personally. So to me, his opinion could be, you know, that of a bachelor, which is very uninformed as someone that's married and knows my mindset from being a bachelor to being a married person. Mm -hmm. there, you know, the world tries to teach you that it might be stressful <laughs> to be married, but it's whatever stress is compared in marriage. I can, I count it all joy. Cause man, my goodness, it's a joy to, for the father to bring you the right woman. But ultimately he's already told us from the get go, his opinion is for men to remain single. And he tries to qualify it saying in the view of this present distress that they're in. Mm -hmm. So I think a there's a lot of context involved in this chapter of, of who his audience is. Cause remember in context, we're looking for who's the writer speaking to, what is the audience that he's trying to get this message to? So that, that would be my fundamental starting point there. Also, he does acknowledge marrying someone is not sin. Um, but he goes on verse 29 to say, but this, I say, brethren, the time has been shortened so that from now on, those who should have wives should be as though they had none. Excuse me. Those, now on those who have wives should be as though they had none. And those who weep as though they did not weep. Those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. Those who buy as though they did not possess. And those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it. For the form of this world is passing away. Now, if I were to keep those very cryptic statements in the view of what he already said, which is, you know, the persecution they're going through, the present distress that they're in, those who may not may be as though they don't have wives, even though they did. And then those who weep to me, those two ideas seem to say this is someone that's lost their wife or their husband because of the persecution that they're going through. If that makes any sense, because I, I, a lot of people ask, well, what's he talking about right here? You know what? It seems like he's just he seems like he's just philosophizing. Right. And trying to sound fancy because it doesn't really it seems like each statement's negating the statement before it, you know, but. I, I would pose that you have to look at the actual persecution they're going through and it puts it in the right frame of perspective for me, but it, it's okay if we disagree. But verse 32, he goes on to say, but I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord, but one who is married is concerned about the things of the world and how he may please his wife and his interests are divided. The woman who is unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord. So now he's talking about both men and women and these, you know, whether you're married or unmarried, he says, so that she may be holy both in body and spirit, but one who is married is concerned about the things of the world and how she may please her husband. And that is that is what we see in scripture, right? Um, as a married woman is is desiring to please her husband. You know, this is this is what the scriptural premise is for the hierarchy. And so therefore he goes on in verse 35, says, I say for your own benefit, not to put a restraint upon you, but to promote what is appropriate to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. So that is kind of his whole, you know, context of of him saying to these people. It's okay if you marry, it's not sin, but during the situation that we're going through, it may be best for you just focus on the Lord because in my opinion, verse 31, what he's saying right here for the form of this world is passing away. They're being persecuted to death on a daily basis. Yeah. So he's trying to say to them, look, you can get married, but you, we, you, you may not have a lot of time left. <laughs> 
So focus on the Lord, in my opinion. But if you do marry, it's not a sin. But I would just encourage you to be undistracted and focus on the Lord. So therefore, don't get married. He's not saying, um, I, I just, I think that's the context of what he's saying. But what are your thoughts, brother? Uh, well, I mean, in my opinion, like he says, it's his opinion. Yeah. So that's that's kind of the biggest part of yep. this whole thing. Um, and this is, I think, the only place in all his letters where he just says, this isn't even something that God commands or says or anything that I could back with scripture. Mm-hmm. It's just how I see it. Yeah. Um, and yeah, he, he, he pretty much says that and then goes on to give his opinion. So um, I wish I was a little bit more prepared because I'm pretty sure that he did say um, I'm a little bit scattered right now because this whole live thing is stressful. <laughs> yes, it is but, stress- um, yeah, imagine imagine me answering random questions. I don't even know what's coming at me. You you do a great job, man. You do an awesome job. I really appreciate everything yeah. you do. But um, I was pretty sure that he did note that. Um, but to marry, I did not command, but God did. But the thing is, I read the uh, the Russian Bible and a lot of the phrasing and things like that over there. I read it one way, and then when I jump over to any of the English translations, sometimes they word it completely differently, and the idea is completely different. Okay. Um, and in fact, I mentioned that to uh, somebody in the comments a little while ago about flat Earth. Um, mm-hmm. Information in the Russian Bible is a lot harder to um, to support with the with the words that are used to describe a lot of things. So, interesting, and that comes from like Slavonic translations. Yes. Yeah. There is kind of a, it's almost like a King James version. Essentially, mm-hmm. it's a, it's an old Russian. Um, there are more modern translations as well, but basically the entire um, Russian speaking community in the United States sticks to that version. Interesting. So. Okay. Yeah. Do you mind if I ask what part of Russia that you live in the States now, or do you live in Russia? I do. I'm in Washington state. Okay, cool. Okay. So yeah. your family, right. You just learned Russian speaking with your parents or were you, did you come over from Russia earlier? No, I actually never lived in Russia. I um, I immigrated over here from Estonia. My oh, wow. parents were immigrants from Ukraine to Estonia and then to the United States. But um, I basically okay. grew up here. So that's cool. Yeah, I don't know if you've ever heard or not, but my uh, my father has an orphanage in the Ukraine. Yeah, I've I've listened to a lot of your um, your father's testimony that you've talked about, which is great because I can definitely relate to that. Not personally, but a lot of the stories that my parents grandparents talk about are exactly what you said your, your dad was doing. So yeah. When I was, when I was a kid, uh, before he would go on his journeys over there, this is before Ukraine broke away before 1991. So I was still a kid, but he would have me, um, he had these little, these little tracks of like David and Goliath and Jonah and the well, things like this. They're like cartoon drawings, you know, like 10 page little bitty booklets. And I would be rolling them up with rubber bands and stuffing them inside of his shoes and inside the lining of his suitcases. And so we'd be trying to like smuggle in gospel tracks and Bible stories. And in, in, when he went into Russia and uh, sometimes they wouldn't find them, but sometimes uh, he said the customs agents would just seem to know exactly which suitcase to go after and they would find them and he would be detained for like 12 to 18 hours. And, you know, just a whole bunch of, they would threaten to take away his passport and all this stuff. And so, yeah, he uh, he really dealt with a lot of a lot of nonsense just to try to help people, you know, and uh, it's because of it, everything that was going on over there. But, yeah, he uh, I guess he had a lot more freedom once Ukraine broke away on its own. Yeah. 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 But no, everybody appreciates the kind of work that he did and everybody else involved in ministry like that, because, I mean, most of the people that that uh, migrated from there here, they were believers because of, you know, guys like your dad. Yeah, so. that's great. Yeah, he does a good thing. Really, I'm really proud of him. Um, he was a, 
he was such an incredible uh, witness to watch growing up that I don't think I even, it, I don't think it even set in of like just exactly how much he put his life on the line until I was in my twenties, yeah. you know, because you just don't know the realities of life yet. You just think, Oh, he's going to another country. My mom's really worried. Why is she really worried? You know, like <laughs> why is my mom crying for three days while he's gone for two weeks, you know? And, and cause she thinks he's not coming back. And, and like, I didn't understand when I was a kid and fully, but then you start to learn more about history and other countries and nations. And then when I was in a, I was in college, I went with my father to his orphanage in the, in the Philippines. And I got to see, um, get out of the United States for the first time, basically. And I got to see, we, we stopped in, in China first in Hong Kong. And then we went down to the Philippines and, and it was just like, I told it, you know, totally different experience. Like the people are just totally, they reacted to things totally differently. Um, their love for God was so different and it was wonderful. You know, it was, it was not the lackadaisical stuff that I saw in the churches in the United States. Like these people were just pa super passionate about, about God, you know, um, mm -hmm. they didn't know a lick of the Bible you know, but it didn't matter to them, you know? So it was like, it was this weird dichotomy. I just realized that we're so blessed in this country. And I think it, I think it should be like every, every person growing up in the United States should have the opportunity to go out of the country once just so they can just see how other people are treated in other countries. Cause it's not always good. It's not always good. So yeah, brother, what's your second question? We don't have anyone else calling in right now and I'm watching the chat and I don't see a lot of uh, people asking questions in the chat. So I see one or two I can get to in just a few minutes. Did you have a second question? Yeah, I, I'll ask it. Um, my phone is at 4%. So if it cuts okay. out, my phone died. So, okay. um, but my second question would be, um, are you able to hear me still? I can hear you. Yeah. Okay. I, I have to check up on the note. This will be first Colossians 1434. Uh, when Paul um, mentions the, that women don't speak in church or in an assembly. Um, and he references some kind of a law. What law did you think he's referencing? He's talking about First Corinthians, fourteen thirty-four. Uh, I think it's First Colossians. Yeah, I'm there's no saying. there's no Colossians fourteen, but there's First oh, yeah, Corinthians yeah. fourteen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was my bad. It's all right. So, it, verse thirty-four: the women are to keep silent in churches, for they're not permitted to speak, but are subject to themselves, just as the law also says. You talking about that? Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, I, that's a good question. I've heard this asked before. I don't have a, I don't have a straight answer for you. I don't know exactly specifically which part of the Torah that he's talking about that, that, um, that they are subject to themselves, uh, just mm -hmm. as the law also says. Um, I really don't know if, if he's referring to, um, I, I would guess he's not referring to Talmudic law, um, uh, which is, you know, the law of the Pharisees, their oral traditions and laws, but, mm -hmm. As I've heard people theorize that he is. Um, we also, you know, if you've watched the channel for any length of time, you've also seen that we, we've found some pretty big, you know, some pretty big potholes, if you will, in what we do have today from the Torah, because it's been revised by the Pharisees um, throughout the, the centuries. And, and so there's, this is why I love Jubilees because it fills in a lot of those potholes. But this, if this was a specific concept in scripture, as far as um, a, a woman, being subject to themselves and not being permitted to speak in the assembly. Um, we see that there's a, there's a context to that even. And that would simply be that if she hasn't learned the law, then what she's going to ask is it's, if she's in the assembly of the Ecclesia, if she's, you know, where there should have been a, either a pastor or a teacher, an elder that's helping people understand or teach the law, or even 
speak about business or prophesy even. And if she's asking an elementary question that could be taught to her by her family, specifically by her husband, then that should be done ahead of time um, and not disrupt what's whatever's going on in this moment here with the elders. Right. So it basically, you know, I, I know a lot of people like to really harp on this and just say, Oh, this dude was, you know, misogynist. This is a, this guy was being prejudicial towards women. Um, but we see an abundance of women acting in the Torah in righteousness and in positions of leadership. Uh, we even see in the new Testament, Luke chapter two forty-two, the prophetess Anna is in the temple and she gets to prophesy. <laughs> right. So she is permitted to speak. Yeah, for sure. You see what I mean? So I don't think, personally, I think that the context, or at least the way I read it, the context is not him saying a woman can never uh, speak or teach about the Word of God or anything like that. Because he actually, in the book of Titus chapter 1, he goes on to say that that women should teach other younger women you know, right. proper behavior, which, is, which would be the law of God. We also see women like Deborah in Judges 4 being a judge over, over Israel, which is a huge deal, which means she had to know the law of God to be able to teach and speak it and even to get to that position of honor. So I really think it. this is what you know he says in verse 35, if they desire to learn anything. So this is assuming that the woman that he's asking not to disrupt whatever's going on is someone that is still ignorant in, in the, the law, basically. They're ignorant in what she needs to learn. She can learn from her family, specifically her husband at home before she would come and disrupt a service with questions that are elementary questions, I guess, if I put it like that. Sure. To make any sense. Yeah. So, yeah, I think there's some, yeah, he's, he says a lot of stuff in his, uh, in his churches, especially again, we're, we're dealing with the same people in Corinthians and same book where there's just a lot of people out of order in this book, you know? So I really yeah. think that that to me is, is the bigger gist of what he's talking about is, He's basically having to tell these people he's having to he's having to recommend them for all kinds of bad stuff. And he's having to tell them like he's having to put all kinds of baby rules up. Oh, I lost you, but it's okay. Um, he's, he's having to put all kinds of baby rules up for these people, specifically the church of Corinth, because they were just really having a hard time adopting good behavior. So um, yeah, that could be it right there. So anyway, thank you for calling in both Alexander and Max of, um, and if there's anyone else that wants to call in, the video, the link to call in for for the for the Streamlabs is in the video description. It's like the second line in the video description. So, let's see if I can find another quick question. If there's any in the chat, yes, Winfeather, that was a good question. All right, looks like Scott McVicker is asking in Ezekiel three, sixteen through nineteen, is this a command to Ezekiel? Or to all believers. Let's go check it out. I think of chapter three. I don't have, I'll be very honest with you guys. I, I don't have the first like six, seven chapters of Ezekiel. I don't have them down pat very well. So I need to go jump into this. All right. So Ezekiel chapter three, 16 through 19. Is this a command to just Ezekiel or to all believers? Let's look at 16 through 19. All right, so here it says, At the end of seven days, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, I've appointed you a watchman to the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, warn them from me. When I say to the wicked, you will surely die, and you do not warn him or speak out to warn the wicked from his wicked way that he may live, that wicked men shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. Yet if you have warned the wicked, and he does not turn from his wickedness or from his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity, but you have delivered yourself. I know, a brother, I know a lot of people want to say that this is to all believers the context of this specific moment here is i mean literally 
the word he's he's fasting the word of the lord comes to him in it this is an angelic moment where an angel shows up and gives him a message which happens all throughout ezekiel or he gets a vision of something you know this happens all over the place in ezekiel specifically he was called to warn them during the days of their apostasy and uh all right looks like we have someone calling in i do see you i'll get to you in just one moment okay brother just be patient i'm gonna finish answering this question real quick as a general premise any believer who you know like we see in the new testament if you see someone that's caught in sin go to them restore them gently um so that you can save that brother so in a general sense yeah you see something that's wrong that's happening if this person is trying to follow the covenant of of the creator they're they're a disciple of jesus and they're caught in a sin go to help restore them gently that would be warning them of their wicked way that they may live as verse 18 talks about right but specifically as far as the, the the role of the prophet Ezekiel and what was being tasked for him, this is what he was saying. It's it's required upon his life upon if he doesn't go and do what the father's called him to do. Now keep in mind, Ezekiel is the willing prophet of the Lord. He signed up for this. <laughs> you and I, the average person, you know that this idea that we're not rolling in the the actual mantle of Ezekiel. So it's a little bit different context. The general premise, though which is what we're doing you know as as we train in the behavior of Yeshua which is we're, we're practicing righteousness which is that you know the the right behavior is what righteousness is and the right behavior of a priest is someone that turns others back from iniquity this is in Malachi 2 4 through 7 we're promised at the resurrection to become a, a priesthood with Yeshua we're practicing for that position right now so will it be on our head if we don't tell every single person what they're doing wrong no that was specifically for Ezekiel in this context. Is the general premise of what Ezekiel is being tasked to do applicable to other believers? Yes, 100%. It's what we're literally training to do. Is it our place to go up to every single other person and try to find sin in their life? No. No, we want to lift others up in love, build them up in love. If sin presents itself, that's a different story. But unfortunately, where people abuse this idea is they just go up to random people and then through two minutes of conversation, try to start reprimanding them in some great sin that's in their life. But, you know, if you don't have a relationship with the person that you're actually going up to, to restore gently unto righteousness and bring them out of that sin, then there's a strong possibility that your reprimand and your your loving warning to atone from that iniquity will not be accepted because you have no relationship with that person. That's the whole point of, you know, discipling uh, uh, with other people or, or, you know, growing in fellowship with other people. And in our situation in our life today is where we have believers all around us at different places in their walk, and we don't have any relationship in their life. So therefore they have no clue who we are either. Why would they accept the word? These people in the days of Ezekiel, they knew who Ezekiel was. The prophet Ezekiel, they knew who he was. And so th this is why they're persecuted <laughs> because they knew what he stood for. They knew who he was, right? In our day, if we just go up to a random fellow believer, you know, and we talk about, hey, man, you got sin in your life. You can get this out of you. And there, and you have no clue. There's no relationship built there. There's no discipleship. There's no fellowship. It, it's going to be a very slim chance that that'll be received the way you want it to go. Especially, it will not be received in what's considered a, a gentle restoration unto them. And there's usually, you know, whatever, whoever is is the leader of that congregation or that group of believers that's considered an elder or a pastor or whatever. It's usually done through that third person, right? That's what we talk about in Matthew five. If someone sinned, 
take someone with you. If they've, especially if they've sinned against you, take someone with you, right? If you go to them and they reject you, then you go to the church, take them with you. If they reject them, then, then, you know, so there's a step process uh, that goes on through that. And I just would be very, I don't think that you're suggesting this. I'm talking to, to more people listening than just you. So I hope you understand that. Um, because I've seen this, I've actually seen this in churches a lot where people just go up to random people, think they get a word from the Lord, start trying to talk about someone's great sin in their life and embarrasses them. And you're like, eh. and sometimes they're not even right. And you're sitting there going, okay, you've, <laughs> you stepped over the lines of, of interacting with someone you don't know. Um, you stepped out of the process by which scripture describes when this takes place, when this reprimand would take place. And therefore you're not going to get the fruit that you think you're going to get. So there's a process laid out for this, but specifically with Ezekiel in his day, um, the people that he would be talking to, I mean, they've all, they've all been reprimanded. The priesthood was so corrupt. They were literally worshiping other gods in the temple um, at this time. So if you read Ezekiel chapter eight and nine, so there's a little bit different circumstances. Hopefully that's a, a thorough and in-depth answer for your brother. Hope that that helps. Okay. So we have someone in the, Waiting on the line, want to ask a question? Uh, let me see here. Okay, brother, I'm going to bring you in. If you can hear me, you're welcome to ask your question. Oh, can you hear me? I can hear you. Oh, hey, hey, man. Uh, I don't even know where to begin. Um, I, I what, saw you your on name. Oh, uh, my name's Isaiah. Hey, what's up, Isaiah? I'm Sean. Yeah, my my. Uh, I just came back from the gym, and my my lights in the car aren't working. So oh, it's, uh, it's okay. Yeah, I don't mind if you guys don't see me. So, <laughs> no, but uh, yeah, real quick. Um, yeah, I came across you um, actually on Pine Creeks. Uh, what is it? His, his YouTube channel when he was interviewing you. Yeah. And uh, honestly, man, I, I really like your stuff, man. You you and what you and Ken, what you guys do, man. Like like going through like the the extra biblical books and stuff and seeing if they you know match up with scripture. Um, you know, cause I, I only knew about the book of Enoch. I didn't know about Jubilees, you know, Testament, 12 patriarchs and, and, you know, it's, I'm like, wow, like, you know, so much more insight, you know, from those books and stuff. I'm trying to get like, um, like my, my brother to kind of like understand that, like, you know, we got these other books and stuff and, and stuff like that. Um, I guess my question is, is like, um, from what in you, like you and Ken studied, um, is the rapture biblical? Like, is that like, or is that just something made up later on? Or, Well, the rapture is a, is a word that is taken from the Greek word harpazo in first Thessalonians four, verse 16, I believe. And it's been that specific, you know, English transliteration concept that brings over to this, this English word rapture is speaking of an event that has all the context of the first resurrection. So this is where many churches have taken that word rapture and which does mean a catching away because that's exactly what happens at the resurrection, which is what Yeshua does in Matthew 13, 30. He sends out the, the angels. These are the reaper angels that go to gather the, you know, the harvest of the earth. And that metaphor, that agricultural metaphor applies to the resurrected righteous that are given incorruptible bodies and raised to eternal life on the day of the Lord. This is, happens at the last trumpet which is what 1 Corinthians 15, 51, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, and Revelation 11, 11 through 15 tells us this is the last trumpet moment. Also in Isaiah 27, I think it's verse 13. So this is at the last great trump, the dead in Christ rise. And this is what Paul's trying to explain, that there's you know those who have died already, they raise first, and those who are alive and remain on that specific day after 42 months of you know the Antichrist and being persecuted, if they're still alive and remain on that day, they are going to get changed in a twinkle of an eye. Those two groups together are escorted by angels away from 
what's about to happen. Because what's about to happen is Yeshua comes down with warrior angels to fight the battle of Armageddon in the day of the Lord and take out the wicked. So they are, that's called the wrath of the lamb when Yeshua comes down. So these, so all these newly fresh resurrected saints have to be taken away from this. This is the fulfillment of the Passover on the day of the Lord. His wrath is passing over us. And we're literally as promised in Isaiah 26, 19 through 21, we're taken to the new Jerusalem to be hidden away in our rooms from the indignation of the Lord. Cause that indignation is coming with Yeshua and those warrior angels to battle the wicked on the earth. So this is where that catching away that, we're resurrected. The angels come escort us to New Jerusalem. That's the catching away moment that Paul calls the harpazo in that First Thessalonians passage, which preachers in modern times who don't understand the resurrection because they don't read the Old Testament, they've taken yeah. that one little word and they create an entire doctrine on that one little word out of context to say that there's a secret rapture or there's a there is you know that the rapture is separate from the resurrection because they just they just don't understand the resurrection. So my my new subscribers playlist on my channel. Some of the first videos I put up on my channel was the was the Gospel of the Kingdom part one and two, and the First Resurrection part one and two. Those those four videos, if you study those, the Bible's easy because it it mentions those things so often in the Bible and so much focuses around the Gospel of the Kingdom and specifically the First Resurrection that this is the common theological concepts that preachers take so greatly out of context and create all these pet doctrines. And so that's just one of the pet doctrines that arises from people not understanding the first resurrection event on the day of the Lord. And so um, hopefully that's a, a decent. Yeah. Yeah. Cause like, the, I don't know, like with me, that, that's kind of what I thought too. Um, it's just like, you know, when you read it, it's just, it seems like it's one event. Cause I, cause honestly, like what I'm trying to do now is like read the Bible. Like I'm trying to read the Bible, like pretending like, you know, I was never taught anything else. Like I'm just picking it up and just reading it. If I'm like on an Island, you know, like, if I was never taught, you know, we're on the spinning ball in space, you know what I mean? Like, how would I interpret these things? And yeah, when I read it, it just seems like it's one event. And, you know, because it's just like, you know, when you go on YouTube and, you know, you see all these, you know, I'm not, I'm not, obviously there's good people that believe that, you know, I want to be fair. I'm not knocking, you know, people that believe the pre-tribulation rapture. Yeah. But it's like most people, you know, they, they do these Bible calculations and I'm like, I don't see what you're saying. I feel like you're taking things out of context. You know, yeah. there's a million, like my friend, you know, he pulled up like there's millions of compilation videos of, Oh, my daughter had a rapture dream 2021. <laughs> you know, we're right, yeah. 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 You, you, you can dream about anything that you obsess over, especially if you've heard, I mean, I used to read incredibly enthralling novels that had nothing to do with scripture. And then I have a dream about them. Yeah. So yeah. The, like, the rapture story is an incredibly ear tickling. And I don't mean that in a derogatory way, but it is an ear tickling story, like a novel. It is its own little mini story that people get extremely emotionally attached to because it, it many of the much of the rapture teachings that are out there they preach with it that you will not undergo persecution during the the days of tribulation that you're going to be you know escaped from that with this rapture so that is very enticing to a lot of people because nobody wants to go undergo persecution especially if it's physical pain right so yeah but this is sadly, this is what we're promised in Revelation. Revelation, Revelation yeah. 13, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Cause like, honestly, man, like I, I believed it like in high school uh, around like 2014, 2015. And I, I graduated in 2017 and just, you know, from watching YouTube and watching all, you know, the people, you know, with 
exposed like all those exposed videos and illuminati right. stuff whatever yeah, i yeah. literally thought like okay the antichrist is coming soon we're gonna be raptured like i was getting kind of yeah. depressed and i was, was kind of you know messing with me i'm like this isn't healthy and, and the sad thing is too man like i've seen some people on youtube like completely like just stop being christian because they're like mm -hmm. i told my family it's gonna be this time and i'm like that's so sad i'm like you yeah. know because you shouldn't throw all of it out because jesus's teachings you know like walking in his you know like <laughs> i want to do that i want to go I want to go yeah. back to the way the world is. I would still try to do righteousness. Yeah. So what you're talking about when people fall into misunderstandings of scripture, they can create entire pet doctrines that are, that are emotionally fueled and they get excited about it and they get their hopes up and they start setting dates and all this stuff that we're very much not in scripture to do. And they're teaching scripture. That's not in context. This is why we started our channel. Cause when I was your age, you said you're 20, 21, I'm 22. Are you 22? So when I was at your, your age group, man, I was like, seeing the same kind of stuff, like seven year rapture before the, before he, the day of the Lord, you know, all kinds of different variances with huge charts and pastor Hagee and all kinds of, yeah. there. but it, it does do that. There, there is the, you know, the backlash that comes when people realize these pet doctrines don't make sense or that they don't get fulfilled the way that they're being taught and people can truly lose hope. And this is exactly why Paul uses that term in this same passage as people take out of context is that this whole story, which is the resurrection, which Paul talks about the resurrection everywhere in his letters. Again, it's a funda fundamental understanding of the prophets and Paul is yeah. just explaining the prophets in all of his letters. So this is why I always sometimes encourage folks. If you're, if you're new to scripture, put Paul down and go read the old Testament first, go study, get, get intimately familiar with that and then go back to Paul and he's easy to read. Because all he's doing is explaining the Old Testament. So that's why he says at the very end here, therefore comfort one another with these words. So he knows they're all going to under go undergo persecution. He's literally living through persecution in his life. Yeah. And he knows what awaits them. Those who, you know, whether you die or whether you make it to the very, very end, and you literally see Yeshua coming back through the, through the sky with your, with your, your eyes and you haven't been killed yet. Right. And you're going to be mm -hmm. changed twinkling of an eye like he says that's why he says in first Corinthians 15 15 51 he says i'll tell you a mystery not all of us will sleep meaning not all of us will die some will be changed yeah. with an eye and that's what he's referring to here as well those who have not fallen asleep who are still alive and remain together both groups those who are raised from the dead and those who are changed the twinkling of an eye they both get their resurrection bodies on the same day at the same time and they're both taken by the angels to a place of safety in the new jerusalem before Yeshua comes back to play Wreck-It Ralph on the creation. And so that's where yeah. verse 18, he's like, therefore comfort one another with these. The, the first resurrection he calls the blessed hope in Romans 8. It is our hope, guys. It is the most important, one of the most important ideas to understand in scripture. And Paul's trying to explain it to us everywhere in his, in his letters because they're literally being killed all around him. And so he's trying to let them know you will live again. And you'll live forever. Oh, and by the way, Jesus wins. It's okay. You know what I mean? So like, he's, yeah, he's trying to tell them the truth, but the enemy, you know, it's, the enemy's done a great job in the last hundred and something years within most American churches to get us all distracted and divided and with all these various doctrines so that we don't understand just the basic ideas that all the prophets, including Jesus and Paul, all of them talked about this concept of the day of the Lord the resurrection of the saints and how it was, it's going to be a game changer forever because it kicks off the millennial reign. And yeah. So, yeah, I think, uh, I think the 
post-millennial views too far to the right a little bit <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> where they're like we're, li- we're living in it right now and everything's past tense i'm like eh, i don't see that <laughs> yeah i'm actually gonna do a show on that i'm trying to find uh the right guest who willing to come on and talk to me about their predator millennial view uh, yeah, yeah his channel's way too big. He he's not yeah. getting my messages, but um, yeah, I, w- uh, I would love to him if you know him. I would invite him on. I'd love to talk to him. But ultimately, yeah. um, the biggest, I mean, just the most glaring problem with preterism or postmillennialism is, you know, where's Jesus? That's what I'm saying. Yeah, because I, I think um, I remember. Yeah, I was watching uh, Apology of Studios, and I remember he he did like re- he went through Revelations and all that. And, yeah. uh, you know, it didn't seem like the kingdom was like literal, like we're in the millennial reign and then Jesus comes back and then yeah, he stops death. I'm like, they, so yeah, where is the Antichrist? Where's yeah, that view, it cannot hold to a literal kingdom that because yeah, then the, the obvious kicks in, which is nothing's changed. People are still dying. That's what I'm saying. I'm like, he's not ruling right now. Yeah, it's it's a misunderstanding <laughs> yeah. of the of the gospel, the kingdom that Jesus actually preached because he's making atonement right now, right? Yeah, he's doing his priestly duty. He'll yeah. be doing his so priestly like duty on your reign as well. But he's, <laughs> yeah. he's still in heaven, as Hebrews tells us. Hebrews is after the resurrection of Yeshua. Um, uh-huh. That our 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 Messiah is in the heavenly temple above, um, ministering before the Father on our behalf. So he's he's doing a job right now. He's just not sitting yeah. there doing nothing. It's a very important job. It was literally what he was prophesied to do, and it's a uh, it's it's the glory above all other in creation. The job he's doing, it's amazing. Uh-huh. But he's not ruling and reigning on the earth right now. That's it's literally yeah. there's a time for that, and this is why the prophecy that literally talks about his priesthood also has the time qualifier of when he rules and reigns. It's in Psalm 110, 1 through 4. It's also repeated by by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 through 25, where he is at the Father's hand or at the Father's side waiting until all of his enemies are put underneath his feet and the reason like that's very literal in a biblical cosmology model yeah so he's literally yeshua is ministering in the heavenly tabernacle above us (laughs) (laughs) literally to the father at the right hand of the father because he's he's you know uh in that position of high priesthood even over the angels which means he's the authority of over everyone else in the heaven above and all this time span of history is happening until this this big you know uh yeah what's the word this big um collating like yeah. yeah it's a crescendo events but it's collating of all these different events that are being organized in the right way that the father is doing throughout all this time until we get to the actual day of the lord where where you know the antichrist is here the false prophets mm-hmm. here Satan has given them their authority to do what they're doing. And then the kings of the earth have gathered the armies that they can to try to fight him as a return. So when they all gather together, this is the terrors that are being gathered to be burned by the fire in Matthew 13. They're all gathered together. They're literally going to be underneath his feet where he returns. So there's, there's a, you know, theological implication. There's a literal implication of up and down, left and right that preterism ignores um, as well as the timing of the qualifiers, because this is a common thing that we see with a lot of mainstream churches that their theology, their seminars, their seminaries, they teach them the yeah. new Testament. They don't truly teach them an understanding of the old Testament. That, yeah, man. I, like that's, I think that's why, like, I totally agree that we need to be old Testament literate and I'm trying to learn the old Testament more. Cause yeah. like for the longest time, I didn't even know what Jesus was doing in heaven. Like right. I thought, like, you know, from here and there, like, you know, my parents would tell me like, oh, he's building, you know, the new Jerusalem. I'm like right. this whole time or he's making rooms for you and stuff. And, you know, obviously there's rooms 
made for us, but they're probably already made. But I didn't even know what Jesus was doing. I didn't even know he existed prior to his incarnation. You know, like I was always confused on, you know, is Jesus God, God, you know, like that's that Trinitarian type thing. And I just, I wish that uh, more churches, you know, taught us more like of the Old Testament. I do, and, and I do think, you know, Jubilees, like those extra books, um, you know, give us so much more insight. You know, it's like yeah. they're so, yeah, it's like, you know, and, well, uh, you're gonna, if you, you keep watching Honor Kings and keep watching our channel, you'll, you know, I did a Milk and Meat, if you go to the Milk and Meat playlist to where I say actually testing the book of Jubilees is the title of that video. Um, and I try to reveal to people that we've been calling them apocryphal or extra, extra books, but that's not what the first century people in Judea called them. They literally read yeah. them as if they were scripture. It was only, uh -huh. only until the end of the first century when the, the Pharisees of that day decided that they were going to exclude certain books and not put them in what they called their own canon because they didn't want people to read them. Um, and those books, lo and behold, explain the yeah. of Jesus really well. Yeah. I, so, I guess, yeah, I guess I, I'll let you go, but uh, I'll say a couple uh, more things. Um, uh, yeah, man, I, I guess uh, just, just keep me in your prayers. Um, I'm, uh, to be honest, like, I'll be straight up. Like I'm kind of struggling right now with, uh, with lust a little bit. Um, oh, welcome to your twenties. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like it's, it's kind of a big issue. Um, you know, I don't, I, thank God I don't struggle with drugs or anything. Um, but, but yeah, it's, it, it's kind of, I can, you know, it's a little too much, but you know, I'm trying, I'm really, I'm trying to get better. You know, I'm trying to walk in the ways of Christ and, and, you know, um, but, but yeah, you know, great, great things are ahead, you know, uh, and, uh, you know, I'm just, be encouraged. God right. bless you, man. Yeah, man. I, I, encouraged. I do you want to get do you want to get married? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's father's answer for that that feeling that you that Paul talks about First Corinthians seven when you burn, right? That's yeah. that's that's the father's answer for that. He actually provided a, an answer for that. So I know that we're we live in a society that's over sexualized. Um Definitely. but but at the same time, um the, the father has made natural remedies that are a blessing to us. So you know, pray, pray for the father to make you into a proper husband. And meanwhile, he'll be making some other girl into a proper wife. So this is, yeah. the, you know, he, he's answered that prayer for me and for my wife. And then I know he can answer that prayer for you too. Okay. Yeah. Th thanks, man. I'm gonna let you go. God bless you, bro. Seriously. Cool. Yeah. Nice to so talk to you. <laughs> Tell me your name one more time. Uh, Isaiah. Um, Isaiah. I, I think okay. I follow you on uh, Instagram and, and Facebook. Uh, Appreciate it, man. Uh, yeah. Anyways, yeah, I'll let you go. Hopefully, hopefully soon you'll be following me on Lighthouse. Oh, you definitely, you definitely, brother. Thanks, Isaiah. Talk to you later. Elias. Hey, man. Welcome. Uh, how are you doing? How are you doing? Good. Good, good. good. Hey, right. Elias, there's a, there's a quick question before we get to your question. There's a quick question in the chat. Jace, I just want to let you know real quick. In Judges 19.24, the guy, the Levite, would offer him because that Levite was not doing the commandments of God. Just because this is, if you read the furthering or the previous chapters in context, this particular Levite was for sale. <laughs> so he was actually, he was actually parlaying his position as a Levite uh, to people for hire. And that's not good. <laughs> that's not the ways of God. That's not, that's not a righteous, uh, righteous man. That's actually a priest of God. So th this was a, this goes into a great misunderstanding of how the whole book of Judges talks about men were not following the commandments of God or the covenants of God. So therefore, he actually runs into the tribe. I believe it's the tribe of Benjamin where a guy says, oh, you're a Levite. Cool. Well, be, be a Levite over me and I'll, I'll, I'll hire you basically. 
which is that's not that's not what they were supposed to do at all. So like on all sides of that story, people were doing lawlessness. So that's why in Judges 19.24, this particular Levite makes a very lawless decision. And then a civil war breaks out because of it, because the other nation or the other tribes uh, realized that there was great lawlessness happening in the tribe of Benjamin at that particular time. And so, um, yeah, there's just the whole thing is full of people making bad choices. All right. Thanks a lot for your patience. I really appreciate you, brother. What was your question tonight? Uh, I, I, I want to say uh, I've been going over, uh, going back and watching some of your videos with uh, Brother Ken. Uh, is called, what's it called? Honor of Kings. Uh, I watched season one and season two, and I saw... Uh, I think I was watching the Apocalypse of Abraham, uh, one of those videos, and then it made a lot of sense to me uh, about uh, Satan and his role. And I, I kind of wanted to ask, because uh, I was coming up in church, I always I was taught a lot of things that I could never really find in scripture for myself, such as like. Uh, Satan was the most powerful or the most favorite angel before his fall or something like that, or he was the minister of music. And I, and the one that always confused me was, and I could never find it anywhere, is that he was kicked out of the angels. Now, so, say that other, Say that last statement again, you cut out a little bit. You can never find what? I could never find where, where it says before, before we, you, we were talking, well, I was taught in church that before Adam and Eve were created and before all the creation, the first day of creation, that he, that Satan fell with a third of the angels that were already up there. And I could right. never find that. Right. And that, and you're asking me, where is it? Yeah. It's not in there. That's why you can't find it. <laughs> exactly. So I, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, that's something that's commonly taught. Um, out of context from Revelation 12 about the dragon who sweeps his tail and a third of the stars fall out of the sky. But yet Jubilees and Genesis talk about the sons of God that come down to the earth and Jubilees expounds specifically on their mission during the days of Jared that they came down to help mankind govern themselves. But while they were down here, this is where the book of Enoch picks up and also in Jubilees as well. Um, I, I guess also in Genesis six, right? Uh, verses one through four, they saw the daughters of men. They got they lusted after them. They they decided to rebel against their commission of what they were supposed to do, and instead they decided to take a wife, have a family, and set up shop, which was crazy because that that's where they're being reprimanded in Enoch fifteen by Yahweh, and they're like, you weren't supposed to take wives, you weren't appointed wives, you were just you were supposed to help mankind and intercede for mankind. And you're not doing your jobs right. And there was only 200 of them, including this Azazel character. And this is where, I don't know if you saw my podcast that we did about a, two months ago. And it's five, I think it was titled Five Good Questions About Satan. And I, and I kind of go over this concept in that video about how there's not a third of the angels in heaven that rebelled. It's literally only 201 of them. Right, right. right. Out of the, out of the potentially it. hundreds of millions, is like a, the, a minuscule percentage of them actually rebelled. Yeah, I guess it's sort of hard for me because, well, I'm 23, so but I learned about the the, the subject of Nephilim when I was about 
let's say 10 years ago, so 13, when I was 13, 10 years ago, so I guess I caught on to that train a bit earlier than a lot of other people in my age range and even, and even noticed. So I guess I still can't understand why a lot of people, other people don't see it because I always just rationalize as when I read that portion in Revelation about the, doesn't it say the devil and his angels or Satan and his angels? It does. Yes, it does. So I'm saying, well, who are, what's the word? In, the, yeah, there's, there's a, this is what I try to tell people about uh, looking at the Hebrew and the Greek. So in the Greek, in that Revelation uh, 12, 7 passage you're talking about where Satan and his angels fight Michael and his angels. Um, this is where I try to tell people Jubilees and Enoch tells us who are the messengers of Satan. And that's all that word means in the Greek and for that word angel in Revelation 12. It just means the word messenger. It doesn't mean a celestial being that was born on day one in heaven. So that's the that's the generic English word that we've put onto anything that's referred to angels. We think that must be different, but that's not what the word in Greek means because it just means messengers. We get a definition for who Satan's messengers are in Enoch and Jubilees, and it's the unclean spirits. And this is where Paul tries to mention this idea of principalities, forces in the air, principalities of darkness, spiritual wickedness in high places. These are the unclean spirits who work underneath the authority of Satan, uh, which is what was given to Satan in Jubilees chapter 10 and also in Enoch. I think it's uh, chapter chapter 9 and 10. So it's th this is just it's kind of like that would be one of those very simple ideas of just something that's uh, – lost in translation people don't know what the greek word messenger means and they think it's like an angel with wings from heaven so you know because we see uh, jesus dealing with the, the demoniacs so i'm like well if you see demons there i'm inclined to believe that's not the only instance and they're not only in that area yeah so, yeah exactly they're still around this is why enoch chapter 54 tells us that those unclean spirits and Azazel, because they're called the hosts that subjected themselves to Azazel, which is what I've tried to show from Scripture, is the Satan character, um, that they are taken care of by Jesus and the returning angels on the day of the Lord. And they're these great chains that are being made for them. They're, they're just, well, actually, the unclean spirits, from my understanding, are, are thrown in the lake of fire and destroyed. Satan's locked up with this chain uh, by Michael, as Revelation 20 also talks about. So that's why during the millennial reign, there's no more unclean spirits running around. And because right now they're still entities running around, possessing people, causing people to do bad stuff and also working their own wickedness. And, and here's where it gets into some like conspiracy stuff, because some people are trying to theorize. And, and there's a lot of a lot of evidence that would make this plausible would be the idea that they're trying. Part of the transhumanist movement is to create a biological, synthetic android style body that could be an actual host body for an unclean spirit to animate. Just like an unclean spirit can move into you and I's body if we weren't following righteousness. So this is where some people believe this is the, the goal of the enemy is to actually create a, a capable body for these untold number of unclean spirits that are subject to Satan to actually inhabit these things to actually physically move upon the earth. And this is what I theorize in the book of uh, Apocalypse of Baruch, chapter 27, uh, where it talks about the 10 plagues during the end of days. And also in the Apocalypse of Abraham, chapter 31, is a parallel to that. And so it talks about the attacks of the specters during the right. end of days leading up to the return of the consummation of the age. So that's what my theory is, 
is that that's that is one of the goals of the transhumanism movement is to literally give a body to unclean spirits so they can interact in this in this world um which could be the mighty men that's being spoken about in revelation 19 that Yeshua and the angels are destroying alongside the beasts and the you know false prophets so it's just a thought um piecing together a whole bunch of stuff but but you and i grew up in a church that didn't use any of i i don't know exactly what church you're in i'm just saying you and i grew up in a church atmosphere that did not use enoch jubilees pox of abraham pox of baruch second Ezra's, all these books that you know first century christians would have access to and under to understand this story you and i are growing up with missing pieces of the puzzle so it's extra difficult yeah, yeah. i i i'm inclined to believe in the same line of movies, especially with all the stuff we're seeing in these movies and stuff all this ai and uh... yeah there's there's someone making a comment right now gerald is saying it's the age of ultron from the marvel movie <laughs> Yeah, yeah. There in that particular movie, Age of Ultron, uh, is not just Ultron himself being inhabited by, you know, an AI that becomes alive and actually gets the the it's life force. Yeah, the life force of whatever mind stone or something like that. Uh, but also, there's so many other things in that movie that relate to Babylon as well in a very in a very unique way. Um, I'm actually going to be including that movie in my uh, Babylon series. So, yeah. It's all one, this stuff one, is connected. One quick thing that I wanted—it's not quite related to what we just talked. I just wanted to throw it out there. I recently watched that. Uh, what was it? Godzilla: King of Monsters. Right. And I, I remember watching you, you, you and Ken's show about Leviathan. I was like, "Oh my goodness!" It's it's in right in our face. And they it? and they had one shot of it. it was so crazy. They are, what, what was the name of the monster? Ghidorah or something. He, he was all splayed out with all his haze, and then they had the cross in the foreground. I was like, no, this is just blatant. They did that. Yeah. I had to yeah. keep myself from getting mad, actually. <laughs> I know what you mean, man. Yeah, there's, it's, you know, the end, I always try to remind people the enemy knows uh, the Bible and they're preparing for it to be real. They believe the Bible's going to become true and they're preparing for it because they want to try to live through it. Meanwhile, they're telling the normal people um, that the Bible's not real. And so, you know, it's just that that weirdness that they that duplicity that they that they implore upon the world to deceive people. But, brother, I really appreciate you calling in. You're actually going to be my last caller tonight. My last question. So is, thank you for uh, helping us end on a good note. No problem, brother. All right. I'll talk to you next time. See you. All right, guys, we are. Okay, we are um, we're here at the end of the at the podcast. I really appreciate everyone participating in the chat, calling in with great questions. Everyone keeping your peace in the chat and being civil. I'm sorry if I couldn't get to all your questions. Looks like there's about three or four that I couldn't get to. Um, I do I do apologize, but try to hang on to them. We're doing Q and A at the end of every podcast, you know. So uh, we'll try to do this again. Uh, as far as an actual full on Q and A episode, we'll, we try to do this at least once a month. Um, but I'm gonna. Well, I'll be back tomorrow night with a new podcast episode, and I hope that you you guys join me tomorrow night. See you next time.